All right, Rooted fans, welcome back to our Season 2 podcast. And today we have a special guest with us today. We have Pastor Boyd, and we're going to get to know him a little bit. Mike has uh, referenced us to him, and we reached out to him, and he so graciously gave us some time today. So thank you, Pastor Boyd, for bring, being on today. You're welcome. It's an honor. Yeah, and Pastor Boyd is pretty local, right? You're in Arnold or like Festus? Arnold. Arnold, okay. We're going to just talk with him about what he does as a ministry, and uh, he has a doctorate, and he's a pastor, and yeah, we'll just... He's a man of many talents. So, uh, Pastor Boyd, if you could just kind of share a little bit of your story and where you got to where you are today. Okay. So my life is kind of divided up into three parts. I grew up in Central California, the part of California where all the vegetables come from couple hours from Yosemite and um, so when I was 25 uh, 27 uh, I wound up going to Argentina my wife and I as career missionaries so we spent about 25 years there in several different parts of Argentina the church planner Bible school director and then I became the pastor of People Church in Arnold and I've been here 21 years now But uh, for the past 25, 30 years, I've been dedicating a lot of time to working with families, uh, specifically uh, marriages and parenting family. So that's a passion that I've had for many, many years. So I did uh, postgraduate work at a master's in counseling, and then I did a doctorate, and I became a licensed professional counselor. And so I see about 12 families a week, 12 to 15 families a week. Wow. I've been doing that for many, many years, but I, I, Monday through Thursday. So I've got, we got Friday, Saturday, Sunday free. Oh, wow. So you're a very busy man with families. That's a, that's a, a lot of responsibility. That's awesome. And you also wrote a book, Responsive Parenting, correct? That's correct. Yeah. We read through that at the beginning of the year, I think. And it was very insightful and very helpful. So you kind of shared a little bit that you meet with families. Um, could you kind of go into a little bit more detail of maybe what that consists of and kind of uh, your calling into that and your passion and where that grew from? So being a pastor, I saw how, how marriages struggled. I saw how families struggled. And I saw what would just seem to be an attack against the family. And uh, it seemed like families needed more help than what I could give them in, in just the church ministry. So I started reaching out to families and through the counseling. And over the years, it's developed much, much more. But mar- marriages um, really suffer from a lot of common problems, immaturity, selfishness, materialism, and just a lack of knowledge of how to make their marriage work. And I found out that if people really wanted to make their marriages better. That was the number one ingredient. If they really wanted to, they could make it much better and they could, they could actually learn to enjoy their marriage. Obviously that was going to make their family better. Their kids are going to grow up in a better home if the marriage is stronger. And then there was all of these young couples that could use some help just learning how to be good parents. And so much of the teaching that I do in my book, and then I do parenting seminars, 
it's not rocket science, but it actually seems like it's new because it some of it has been forgotten. It used to be stuff that was taught a hundred years ago or actually practiced. And it seems to be making a difference uh, in, in the family. So it's very rewarding when I have a, a, I get a letter or a note from a couple who says, you know, our marriage was saved because of counseling or our our family's so much better off because of what we've learned. So that's very satisfying. Yeah. So some of the topics we're going to talk about today is marriage and parenting. Do you have any dating advice before people get into a marriage? Well, the the one thing that I would say is, and I think it's one of the greatest fallacies, so many people go into marriage looking to be happy, which sounds totally normal, but they're actually looking for the marriage to make them happy. So they're looking for a person who is going to fulfill their happiness, whether this guy is looking for this girl that's just going to satisfy his longing for happiness, or she's looking for someone who's going to satisfy her longing for happiness. Unfortunately, that's a recipe for disaster. So what I say, couples need to find their happiness and their contentment in God. They go into the marriage actually admiring or respecting the person they want to marry, but they don't look to that person to supply their happiness because that's a real recipe for disaster. But that's actually a real common model of, of dating today. I'm just going to try to find the, the person who's going to make me happy. So then the point of dating is what? For, for me, the point of dating is to get to know people and to discover the, their character, discover who, who they really are. And I say, uh, what happens today, unfortunately, many couples date and it's as if they, they don't do this stage of really getting to know each other. They jump into a physical relationship really fast and they don't actually really get to know the character of the person, the personality of the person. I'm surprised Oftentimes, I do a little technique. I have couples that are married, been married for several years, and I'll have them in my office, and I'll say to each of them, describe the personality of your wife or describe the personality, and I am shocked at how much they struggle with describing the personality, and these are people already married, Hmm. so this is what dating for me is, to learn the other person and learn who they are, what their values, what they believe, their background, everything about it. Are you going to be compatible? Do you want kids? And how do you believe those kids should be raised? Do you love God? And what's your work ethic? How do you view money? There's so many things that people are really overlooking that are going to going to make a big difference in their life. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting what like our society tries to push in dating and looking at dating from a biblical viewpoint and getting mentorship through that from uh, people who have more experience and are more knowledgeable about that. And I think, especially for our generation, the whole idea of finding happiness and then the physical side of a relationship is, from what I see, I don't know what the stats are, but I feel like that is kind of like what people seek and it leads to I, th- I just think problems and problems in a marriage that leads down to the family. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very interesting to hear what you've been saying about that so far. Well, you really, you, you, Jordan, you really bring up a good point. And, and that is that 
many people wind up cohabitating, living together before marriage. And the reason is they, they say, well, we just want to know if this is going to work. I would like to see if it's really going to work. But statistics actually show that people who live together before marriage, when they do get married, their marriage has a greater possibility of divorce than people who just get married because their expectations change. So when they're living together in cohabitation, they have this individualistic view. They're just two people living together and they see themselves as two people. They don't see themselves as, a, as married people see themselves. So then they get married and they change those expectations without really realizing it. So she sees him as her husband, he sees her as his wife, and they actually expect more from each other and they don't deliver more and they're very unhappy. So oftentimes people wind up divorcing who've lived together for many years before. Yeah, and today people, <clears throat> I think, look at at that saying, oh, well, we're engaged. It's okay to, it's okay to live together now because we're engaged. We're, we're going to be married. And that's an excuse, I think, especially for a lot of people to do that as well. And I, I, about half the people I see in counseling are not married and about half are married. But of all the people I've seen, and I've actually seen hundreds and hundreds of couples, I have never met one couple in my life that really didn't want fidelity. I've met a couple who said, a couple out of those hundreds of couples, there's a couple who said that they were practicing open marriage, but they really didn't believe that because they wanted fidelity from each other. And the reason they were in my office is because of infidelity. <laughs> Everybody wants fidelity. You want fidelity. And the only way you're getting fidelity is commitment. And that's what marriage is. All right, so let's move on to the topic of marriage uh, through that. What is a true biblical representation of marriage? So I think that that marriage could really be summed up as fidelity and and commitment to each other. Uh, and that's what that's that's what the the really biblical view of marriage is. So when the Bible is saying that you shouldn't live together before you're married, this isn't because God is wanting to pride people of pleasure. He's wanting you to have the best possibility of fidelity and in mutual enjoyment when you get together so that you're actually able to really, really have the most satisfaction out of marriage. There's a book that's written, and it's a very good book called Love and Respect, and it's very biblical because... What women want most from men, this is a thesis of the book, but it's also very biblical out of, out of Ephesians, that women want to be loved by their husbands. And that's a basic need. Men also want to be loved, but that, that love to a man comes in the form of respect. So if his wife loves him, he feels loved. If she, if she uh, feels cherished and cared for, she feels loved. That's what women need from their husbands. That's what husbands need from their wives. And oftentimes, if, if one of those is deprived, the other one deprives the other one of that, and the, the marriage is kind of high-centered and stuck, when those two things can really get the marriage moving in the right direction. So why, why do you think it's more 
do you think it's more effective to, I mean, we obviously, I think we'll have a, a biased answer to this, but uh, why do you think it's more effective to have a, a biblical pre- uh, perspective in marriage rather than maybe going to a counselor uh, for marriage who doesn't have the Bible as their foundation? So um, I, th- I think the Bible offers us so much good counsel about the family, about marriage, about um, parenting, uh, how to how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife, how to be a good father, how to be a good mother. And if you have faith, if you are a Christian, and if you t- follow that biblical model, you have a greater possibility. Now, I've seen people have fairly good marriages that are not Christians, but I just think that marriage is a tough prospect. It's not it's not an easy thing. This is the most intimate relationship on the face of the earth. And it, I say that marriage represents the greatest possibility of mutual satisfaction or the greatest pain possible of any relationship on the earth. So there's nothing in the middle there. It's either going to be bad or it's going to be good. Even if it's in the middle and it's mediocre, it's bad. So, uh, the Bible, had, right from the very beginning, uh, where, where God is the founder of marriage in the book of Genesis, and he gives advice to the families. The greatest gift families can give to their children when they get married is let them have their independence. And he says the, 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 the man will cleave to his wife and they will be one. So when the husband's family let them go, the wife's family let them go, and they establish their own independent family, that's a gift from the family. And that advice just flows all the way through the Bible of good advice of how husbands can view their wives and wives can view their husbands. So so just going back, you said that like the the greatest gift or the gift of like parents give to their children is giving them away. Right. That what, so is that is that kind of where they get that from, like, the, just the marriage ceremonies of, like, parents giving them their kids away? That's exactly, that's exactly <laughs> what that's supposed to mean. Who gives this woman away? And the father says, I do. But a lot of people have done the ceremony, but in practicality, they've still been way too involved in their children's lives. I say that parents at that point shouldn't offer unsolicited advice. If there's a good relationship, children are going to be reaching out, mom, dad, what do you think? Hmm. But they shouldn't be trying to tell their, if they are, they're going to cause a bad relationship with the daughter-in-law or the son-in-law if they're way too involved in the marriage. And they should stand back and wait for the kids to, to talk to them. And that's a gift. And that's exactly what that ceremony represents. Oh, wow. So what are some common issues that people face before marriage? Or what are some issues, uh, I guess, premarital counseling that you have seen or have uh, worked through with some uh, people? So premarital counseling has some value, but actually, um, I actually say better counseling happens. And I I do premarital counseling, but I feel like it doesn't accomplish a lot because they're just like in love with each other and they just see each other and you ask them (laughs) what kind of problems they have so few problems. She, uh, she sees him as the, you know, handsome, wonderful guy. He sees her and it's so limited what you can. Now I tell them to come back to me in six months and I've had a few come back. Now you can actually do some real counsel because 
the glow is kind of fallen off of her. His armor is kind of chinked a little bit now. And <laughs> so, uh, there, there are, I say, I, here's a list of hindrances that I say hinder, um, wives. And I've got a list for men. Wives sometimes are very prone to anxiety. Obviously these can go either way, but, uh, they can have anxiety and that anxiety can really um, be a hindrance in the marriage and learning how to control that anxiety, turn it over to God, because biblically we can have concerns, but once it turns into worry, that's a sin and anxiety can become a great hindrance. Another one is resentment. Um, if the husband is not loving her and putting her first, he's kind of a selfish guy she can develop resentment, but that resentment is, is going to be a big hindrance. And an, another one is immaturity. That's a big one for both. Uh, to, to have a good marriage, couples have to mature. They have to be willing to acknowledge what what's wrong and, and not deflect and blame each other. It's kind of like Jesus said, if you want to take the speck out of your brother's eye, try to take the two before out of your own eye first. But that's an example of maturity. And then another hindrance for women, I think, is manipulation. If they, if the guy is not mature, then sometimes there's this temptation to try to manipulate him, especially if she grew up seeing manipulation. And this happens in a lot of homes. For guys, guys are really good at blaming their wife for their own problems or somebody else, but it's not their fault. Uh, for guys, another problem is lack of acceptance of their wife, her personality. That's how God made her. That when you start accepting her just the way she is, then this marriage starts to grow. If there's any rejection of, of her personality, of the way, of, of the way she is, it's a huge hindrance in the marriage. Guys have anger and that's a big problem. Not learning how to control their anger and their emotions for another, for for guys, delayed gratification, they want they want what they want now. Whether it's buying a toy or whether it's physical intimacy with their wife, learning how to control their own gratification and being patient. Those are some typical hindrances in marriage. So, what what are some uh, issues that you've seen? Uh, marriages have uh, that have caused complications or I mean you've probably have seen couples that have gone through divorce as well so what have been some of those issues so there's just a lot of different kinds of issues let me mention a few so when I'm when I'm counseling couples I try to help them look for what we call repetitive patterns if you have a pattern that uh, is repeating and it's why I try to help them discover that. Sometimes I discover it right in the sessions, but anything that is repetitive means that it's a pattern and it's repeating. And you will, you will repeat this pattern almost automatically without thinking about it. Let's say that a guy has a pattern of yelling at his wife when he gets mad and maybe slamming the door. Well, that's a pattern. And the only way to break that is to recognize it. <clears throat> and patterns are very, she may, she may have a pattern of maybe just shutting down where that, that he can't talk to her. Okay. So that's a repetitive pattern. So what I try to help them do is discover those patterns 
and patterns are very difficult to change. So what I try to do is help them build another pattern. Here's an analogy of that. So a pattern, imagine it like an oak tree that's there. You're not going to go out and kick the oak tree over. I mean, it's it's there. It's a strong pattern. So a new pattern is to take a young oak tree and plant it and water it and fertilize it. Stop watering the old tree. Let it die and let the new pattern start growing. And that's how you overcome patterns. Not easy and it's slow work, but that's how we overcome patterns that are that are very, very uncomfortable. For instance, infidelity, that is something very common today, whether it's a full-blown affair or what is really common today is couples having emotional affairs. So they've been married 10 years and they're kind of bored with each other. And let's say the wife just has a conversation at lunch with a coworker or vice versa. The guy starts maybe having lunch with a a coworker and they start texting back and forth. Well, when the other one finds out about this, they're very hurt. And of course, no, no husband or wife should be sharing intimate details with a stranger outside of your marriage. So this is very, very common today. I call them emotional affairs, even though they're, there may have been any kind of physical contact. This emotional contact feels like a violation to the other person. And there's two huge factors for overcoming that. Number one is the person who I call them the offender. Are they truly repentant and sorry? And is this, is this activity stopped completely? If it is, there's hope. And then secondly, the offended party, can they actually forgive? Sometimes the second one becomes actually greater, a greater problem than the first one. But those are the two problems that have to be overcome if, if there's any infidelity. And it, it's a very, very big problem to overcome hurt that's been inflicted by infidelity. Okay, so we've kind of talked about like bad patterns. What are some good patterns that you've seen in marriages that like that you've just like changed and now that they're on like a good track? Uh, for like a quote-unquote successful marriage? So let me mention a couple of them. There are probably a dozen of them, but just a couple of them. So number one, learning to listen. And obviously this is good for anybody anywhere. Anybody could actually improve their life by learning how to listen, but it will actually change a marriage by learning how to listen because we're all poor listeners. And especially if there's any conflict going on, the one person maybe, say the wife is trying to tell her husband something that's bothering her and he keeps interrupting her because he doesn't think she has the story right and he's just trying to correct her. But every time he interrupts her, the conflict is growing, right? Whereas if he can learn, this is what I try to teach them, just let her talk. Even if she doesn't have it right, it's not right for you to be interrupting her. And besides, that's her perspective. And it may be different from yours. Doesn't mean that she's lying. Okay, this is how she sees it. So if you can listen to something, and then after listening, you can actually say something like, "I, I, um, I'm going to think about what you said, and maybe we could talk about this again." So listening is is one of the biggest things that can help improve a marriage drastically, and we can actually grow to become better listeners. So that's. That's one thing that is just super, super important. Another thing might be just learning to be more thoughtful after people are married for a a while. 
they kind of take each other for granted. They stop leaving little notes, doing little kind things for each other. People that are married for a long time and stay happy, they never stop doing the little things for each other. Just, just know bringing a cup of coffee, uh, writing a note, uh, take, taking time for a date night. Just that's what keeps a marriage alive. So first of all, we try to stop these damaging patterns by starting a new one. So that's inflicting this hurt. And then we try to work on, like you said, things that are going to improve the marriage at the same time. And it does work if people are, are really willing to work at it. So we kind of had some advice for people getting into dating. What about uh, for people looking to pursue marriage? What would it kind of be like just a, a little gold nugget for somebody out there? Okay. I would, I would say if you really want to pursue marriage, I would advise against uh, getting to uh, living together because I think you hurt your marriage. You hurt your, your possibilities for a good marriage. Uh, and science will back me up on that. Uh, the best thing you can do is really get to know the person, spend time with them. And don't make your, once you you feel like you want to marry this person, don't make your engagement five years long. I mean, a decent engagement should be no longer than a year. And you, once you really have, have, have made that commitment, you're going to begin these patterns in this engagement time where you don't have a lot of conflict. You're going to begin patterns that will carry on into your marriage. Being a good listener um, when conflict does develop, actually try to learn how to resolve the conflict. See, resolving conflict is something a lot of people don't really learn in their homes because they never saw it done. There's an interesting uh, uh, nugget here about resolving conflict. If you've ever been like the Ted Drews in St. Louis. Oh, they, yes. When you, they take your, I'm going to make you want an ice cream here. Yep. No. But when they take your, when they take your order, nobody writes anything down. If you've ever noticed that they just keep it in their head. So there was this uh, psychologist in Vienna, Austria, and she, there was a famous restaurant there. And she noticed that the waiters would take 10, 20, 30 orders and never write anything down because that was a custom of this. So she asked the owner, could she interview some of these waiters? And she asked them, how do you do this? And they said, well, you know, we, we have to be trained and we have to work at it. So she started interviewing them, but she found out as soon as the order was over, as soon as everyone had gotten their order, they never remembered anything whatsoever. They moved on. So here is the point that when we have conflict, if we, re if we resolve it, we're able to kind of put that in a drawer and put it away. But a lot of marriages, they just have so much unresolved conflict. It's kind of like cluttering up your lives, cluttering up your house. You're just tripping over the stuff all the time. You're never able to put it away. It never goes away. Your mind won't let you because it never was resolved. And learning how to resolve conflict in marriage, even if it's not fully resolved, but the two of you agree, all right, we've done the best we can do here. And that's why I say, if couples can say, listen, and then say, hey, could we talk about this again tomorrow? then you're going to begin, you're going to begin to resolve things. And that's one of the best things that uh, giving advice to a young couple is learning how to continue to love and be kind. But secondly, learn how to resolve conflict and not let it build up on you. Mm -hmm.
right, so we'll move on to our next topic of parenting. What does a biblical representation of parenting look like, or is there a definition of that? So I like to use Proverbs 22.6, which says, Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. So uh, the word old there doesn't mean 75. It, it really means the age in which the child moves into the teenage years or the age that the child would consider himself an adult, 14, 15 years of age makes a whole lot more sense, the verse, when you think about it. And that's that's really what I believe the verse is saying. Train up a child, and when he gets to that age where he is feels like he's an adult or she feels like he's she's an adult, she's going to not turn from this way that she's been taught. And I actually think that there's a way for each child. So a parent is going to see an in, uh, a, a, a very unique way for each child, even though you might have four children, look at them all unique. So we will have principles that we want to teach them all, but we might apply the principles a little different to each one because of their uniqueness, because one might be artistic, one might be very athletic, one might be mechanical, another one uh, might be very academic. And we want to we want to see them and study them, and then we want to support that effort. So that's, I think that's the biblical view. Understand that there is a divine plan for their life, and you are God's partner in helping that child pursue that plan for their life. So what makes good parenting good, and the vice versa of that what would make uh, parenting not be good? So I wrote a book called Responsive Parenting, and... I'm actually republishing the book now, and I changed the title to Parenting with Perspective. And so I divided it up into good parenting and bad parenting. So the 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 bad parenting I call reactive parenting. The good parenting I call responsive parenting. So reactive parenting is kind of like uh, putting out fires all the time. You're just reacting. You're you're, and responsive parenting is thoughtful. Uh, reactive is impulsive. And so reactive, I divided it up into two categories of reactive parenting. One would be authoritarian uh, parenting where the parent basically says, this is the way we do it. The kid says, well, why? And the parent says, because I said so. So they're very authoritarian. Okay, before uh, 50 years ago, there were a lot more authoritarian homes. There's less today. And the other uh, reactive parenting is what I call permissive parenting. So permissive parenting wants connection with the child. That's the, that is the goal of permissive parenting. I don't want to ever say no. I don't want to upset my child. I want to make my child happy. So I want to be connected to my child, which sounds good. The authoritarian parent is I want my child to behave I want, I want order in our home, which sounds good. The problem is they, they are missing, they're each missing the component. The authoritarian needs more connection. The, react, the uh, permissive parent needs more order. So that's why I call responsive parenting has both of those. It has the connection, but it also has order and authority. And that's what, that's what a child needs. They can't exist on just one of those. They need both of them. 
what are some issues of married couples uh, wanting to become parents or are planning to uh, become parents? In regard to parenting? Correct. Okay. So I, w- I would say if I were working with young parents, and this is very important because young parents often don't see this, they it's very easy for parents who don't have any, I mean, let's say a couple who doesn't have any kids, it, they can see the mistakes that other couples have with their kids. When they're single and they don't have any kids, kids it's actually easy to easier to see other people's mistakes they're making with their kids. And sometimes I'll even point this out to them, which isn't a good idea. But they, when they get their own kids, it's far more difficult to see the mistakes that they're making. So some, some very basic things that I say is to, you want, you want to love your kids. You want to affirm them. You want to build their self-esteem. That's part of good parenting, but you want to establish your authority as a parent. And you can establish that uh, in the first two years. If you miss that opportunity to establish that uh, your parental authority, which is very biblical, and that simply means your kids are going to respect you and obey you, then parenting is going to be much more difficult for you. Sometimes kids will grow out of that, become very good kids, but sometimes they will become, um, they'll have a rough time and make make the, the parents' lives very miserable in their teenage years, pre-adolescence. Whereas if you establish that parental authority in those first two years, that's the critical stage. Life is so, it was going to be so much easier for you and so much better for the kids. Yeah, I remember when I was in camp ministry, they instructed us as counselors to be kind of uh, more tough or more strict with the kids earlier on in the week and then kind of like uh, loosen the grip, so to speak, on the disciplinary issues. And because if you're tough on them at the beginning, then they respected you and had you had that kind of authority over them. But if you just let them run wild for that first, you know, couple days, then uh, later on the week, you just had chaos. So is it, right. would that be kind of like a good illustration for parenting in it's, a sense? It, it is. It's exactly what I say. Mm-hmm. So I get asked about uh, should should parents spank their children? And here's my answer. I say that I think spanking spanking is valid. If it begins around year and a half to two, we're just talking light spanking, and it ends somewhere around six or seven. The reason it's very important to end it early is because spanking can shame a child. And But in those early years with toddlers, whether you're spanking or not, you're still going to discipline them in some way right then because you're setting the pattern. And let's say that a two-year-old is throwing their food on the floor and they're throwing a tantrum. You never want to ever discipline a child uh, without clearly knowing that this is defiant. So you've you've very clearly told the child no numerous times and the child's going to defy, defy, uh, defy you. So I always tell parents, take the child out so that it's just you and the child alone. Always make discipline, uh, protect the child's dignity, even if they're a toddler. Mm-hmm. You don't want to, you can never be angry. You can't yell at a child. You can't yell at a child to stop yelling. You can't be angry at a child for their anger. Yeah. That uh, a child is going to react to what they feel, not to what you say. But establishing your authority makes all the difference in how the child responds and reacts. Yeah. What is the damage in making um, 
a verbal threat, you know, like I'm going to, you know, spank you and then you don't follow through on it with that kid. Does that develop a habit within the kid to continue on misbehaving because they realize, oh, they're just threatening me, not following through with their word? So inconsistency on the part of parents is probably uh, one of their biggest obstacles. So I tell parents, never make threats. Never tell a child, I'll spank you. I'll do this if you don't do that. Just continue to work with the child. And you're going to give a warning, not a threat, a warning. Okay. And you've done this numerous times. Okay. If this happens, you're going to get a spanking or this is what's going to happen to you. All right. So the talk before very commonly is very important. And then the talk afterwards with the child, because what you want is the child to understand the spanking or the discipline has absolutely no effect. If the child doesn't understand why he was disciplined, he, he or she needs to understand why this happened to me, because that's, what's going to make the difference. So you're very careful to explain it before, make sure the child understands. And then afterwards, again, you're re-explaining it. And then if it happens again, you keep on doing it till the child learns. But a, a parent can never discipline in anger. They can never discipline when uh, they aren't completely and have their own self-control. Hmm. So one thing that I learned in like YWAM and uh, just just talking about like family family cycles, and I think you kind of can see that as parents pass down or as parents are parenting, and they don't realize that you take on a lot more of what your parents have like how they parented you whether you want to or not so it's like if like parents say have a a cycle of like anger and it gets passed down the kids and then that's how they react to their kids how do you like break that cycle of anger or say depression or whatever may run in a family so i call these patterns we okay. inherit good patterns and bad patterns from our parents it's inevitable mm-hmm. But we have to become aware, and you're going to do that through reading good books, following following uh, people like Dr. James Dobson or good, good, good writers or Christian counseling. You're going to you're going to learn what are good patterns, what are bad patterns. Some patterns obviously are you you might know it's not good to yell at your child, but that doesn't mean you can stop doing it. Because you, you saw it was done to you as a child, you're doing it to your children, and you're not nearly as aware of it as a person from the outside looking at you. And patterns are very difficult to change, but that's a, that's a good reason for counseling because you identify the problem and then you develop a strategy on how you're going to change that pattern. So we inherit a lot of dysfunctional stuff from our parents, and the truth of it is they inherited from their parents, and it's difficult to change some patterns like that, but they can be changed. All we have to do is become aware of them. And what is a good pattern here? How do I replace that? How do I do it? And then you very meticulously and consistently begin, for instance, okay, here's a really common dysfunctional pattern. So there's a lot of blended families today. So let's say you have a a husband and a wife and he has kids and she has kids. And they are having problems because she doesn't really want him disciplining her kids. He doesn't want Mm. her disciplining his kids. So it's a real problem. So a a lot of conflict develops over this. So what I encourage them is 
never correct each other in front of the kids. So let's say he tries to correct her kids and she says, no, don't do that. Okay. Well, that's very damaging. So don't correct each other in front of the kids. And if she doesn't feel comfortable him disciplining, then that both of them should go to her kids to show there's unity. She might be the one that delivers the message, but they're both sitting there, vice versa. He's disciplining his kids. She's with them. They're, they're both there together showing the kids they're in agreement. He might be the one that actually explains it. So it's this unity, getting on the same page, not contradicting the parent while they're disciplining, because that just causes confusion to the children. You, afterwards, you want to talk to the parents, say, hey, I think you went overboard there. You work that out and you get on the same page. So that's a super, super common problem when it comes to discipline. Another thing that's really, really common is when the child is in that critical stage of, let's say, uh, between a year and a half and four, a lot of parents will see disobedience as real cute. So let's say that uh, the child is being actually kind of disrespectful to a grandparent or a teacher or someone else. And they kind of laugh it off. Oh, that's just the way he is. The truth of it is, you know, the child may be cute in the actions, but if they don't, if they don't really see it as disobedience and disrespect, when they're 10 years old, it's kind of ugly. But when they had a chance to deal with it, they were kind of laughing it off, saying, This is just kind of how my kid is. But they're creating a problem later for their child and for themselves. Parenting is so important to get kind of everything while they're young and kind of like more malleable, I guess. Like Absolutely. Fresh. Those critical those critical years, uh, I say start a year and a half. Mm-hmm. You know, it varies with each child, but I say a year and a half to four. I mean, you're setting the pattern right there. I mean, it's amazing what happens. Now, you're still going to be disciplining, in, but you have established your parental authority. Mm-hmm. The child will respect you, will respond to you. You're not going to have to be giving a lot of spankings and a lot of disciplines if you take advantage of those first few years. And I'm very much against parents spanking children that are older or or disciplining children, even forget the spanking, just disciplining them in front of other people, even family members, even their own siblings. Mm-hmm. This discipline should take place and protect the dignity of the child, just mm-hmm. the parent or the parents and the child. And the child feels that and the child responds because the, the, the child understands that this, dis, this discipline is necessary. I did something that wasn't right. I understand what I did. And I, I want to correct this. The child can, can begin to understand that if you're consistent, you're totally, totally consistent. So disciplining a kid in an area that's not like in public or in a family setting or like a family gathering, uh, do you address that kid? when he has been disrespectful or is just continuing on in a behavior that's not uh, good? Do you address him right there and say, Hey, you're going to be disciplined when we get home or like, how do you, so you pick the child up and you take him out of the room. So everything you're going to say to that child mm-hmm. or, or the boy or girl, you pick them up and say it in private. Mm-hmm. So if they're a little older, you might not do anything there, but you would address it when you get home. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're always protecting the dignity of the child. You, you might damage the child by making a big scene in front of the other people. Mm. Yeah. So and, and cause shame. Shame is very powerful. Mm. So you want to avoid shame, but you don't want to let the child off the hook either. Yeah. 
So there's like a, maybe not a delicate balance, but there is a balance between like the respect and then also like, hey, I am the parent and you do need to listen, but I respect you as my kid and as, well, a human basically and your feelings. So you have different tools you use. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, the only tool you don't you have is a, it's is not a hammer. I mean, you have all kinds of tools, and you, you use the appropriate tool at the appropriate time, mm-hmm. in the appropriate way. Mm-hmm. But another, let me let me just go back. Discipline can actually start very young. You can't imagine how many couples I get in counseling that will say, "I have a two-year-old, a four-year-old, even five-year-old that's never slept in their bed." They sleep with us every night. This is so common that it is absolutely shocking to me. Hmm. And of course, I work with parents to to tell them that even with a baby, they have to, you know, let's let's say it's four months old, five months old, and they are going and getting the baby, taking the baby to bed with them. And now they have a five-year-old. The kids never slept in the bed. They're actually hurting the child. Because they're not developing the autonomy of the child, besides the the pressure it's going to put on the marriage to have a child sleeping in your bed. And here you have this kid who's actually past the toddler stage and never slept in the, in the bed. But I have had many, many couples where I've had a baby, say six months old, and maybe even have a two-year-old, and I challenge them to let them cry, cry it out. And I tell them, talk to the doctor, that if they have a good pediatrician, he'll agree with me. And usually the pediatrician will, and they might say the baby's going to cry for one or two nights. The toddler might cry for three or four, but you can go in and check on them every 20 minutes. Most of the time, the baby will cry one night and it's very painful. The toddler might cry a couple nights, but that's it. Once it's done, as long as you don't go back on your word and mess it all up, you know, (laughs) if you stick with it, they will sleep in their own beds and it's, it's in a, it's enhancing their own autonomy, their own individuality. And it's not so much um, about parents are trying to find an easy route, but the truth of it is it's going to become a more difficult route. Hmm. It might be easier in the moment to uh, think about wanting to uh, let them cry it out. But in the long run, you're hurting the child. All right. So we talked a little bit about culture and you mentioned you were in uh, Argentina, right? Correct. For like, uh, like what? It was a solid amount of time. 20 20 something years. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. So you've been able to see how like different cultures, you know, being here in Missouri and then being in Argentina and maybe even, I don't know, have you traveled the world a little bit? Well, all over Latin America. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. That's pretty good. So you've been able to see the different cultures. So how does culture play a part into family? So I'm very familiar with the American culture and I'm familiar with Latin culture and the similarities in parenting is striking. Uh, I've worked some with Asians in my uh, counseling that I wouldn't consider that I'm an expert in other cultures, but those two cultures, I feel very comfortable having spent so much time Mm -hmm. and this, the, the same permissiveness, the same inconsistency and discipline happens with Hispanics as it does with Americans. And it seems to be the most prevalent parenting style that has just come with, with the, with our age. And 
they're winding up hurting their children by being so permissive. The permissiveness, I think, has a good motive because they just want to be good to their children and they want to be connected. So there's that's a noble motivation. But because there is such a, a lack of structure and a desire to to have authority and have a child that's o- o- obedient, they wind up creating a prob- problems in their children when they're later. Uh, this is rampant in, in uh, Latin. Latin culture mm. as it is in America. Mm. So how about just in general, it's just like where you grow up. So like say here out in the Midwest versus say, uh, you know, out in like West Coast or East Coast, like how does your environment like play into how you like how you function later in life, how you parent, how you approach relationships? Just how does that affect? Um, well, I think that? one of the things um People who grew up and have a a greater extended family uh, benefit from it. Mm -hmm. We're finding some people are growing up today with with hardly any extended family. They've moved away from them or the extended family is just cut off from them. A child needs grandparents. They need uncles and aunts. They need people in their lives. It creates social skills. uh, They need this emotional support. This is one of the ways the American family is really suffering. So in Latin America, in this sense, they do have that benefit. The, the extended family, probably the Asian family, too, they're uh, they're much stronger in being more connected to the extended family. And that's one of the great weaknesses of, of American culture. But I think the Midwest is probably a little more connected to the extended family than, say, the West Coast. But... All of America as a whole is weak in this area, in my opinion. Would you say it's like Western culture in general? Because I think I think Asians like they live together with their parents, grandparents for a very long time, and I think that's the same, like you said, with Latinos. And then I think African cultures like they just they don't stay. So is this more of a Western? Th- uh, I think issue? it is. Okay. I think West Western Europe, uh, Western culture, is really really suffering because of the isolation from extended family. Mm. And how it's did, really, really a, a negative thing that has hurt us so much. How did that like, like happen? I guess prosperity has contributed to it. Uh, Latin America: a young couple gets married, they're not able to go out and get their own place mm-hmm. financially. I'm talking in generalities here, of course, but uh, most are going to live with somebody, and they're not afraid to 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 be around their family but it's become the culture the norm you get married you're going to get out even today people are thinking you get married you gotta have your own house uh so prosperity has contributed to isolation of families and then so many families in america are so dysfunctional so broken i mean there's you know there's divorce that has had its impact so you have all of the fractions of divorce you have this idea that we want to have our own family which I, I see that as a gift of being able to start your life without your extended family controlling you, but being cut off from your family like that is not good for you, neither for your children. All right, I think that's all the questions we had for parenting and marriage. Now we want to ask you some random questions. This is kind of how we okay. close out the deals. <laughs> So it could be okay. anything. So prepare yourself. Yes. All right. What sounds fun to you? So uh, I I enjoy being around my family. 
Uh, I enjoy reading good books. I, I like uh, Audible, so I'm always, and I, I listen to books in several different, uh, I mean, on psychology, theology, history. I love history. I like to work with woods. I'm always making some kind of project. So those are things that sound fun to me. Do you know any other languages outside of the English language? So I do speak Spanish. So those two languages. What about Greek? Would you like to learn Greek at least? Well, I do know some basic Greek from my theological training. So, and I have some software programs that allow me to work with Greek and Hebrew. So it's helpful. Yeah, I would love to to know Greek and Hebrew better, but I do benefit from the tools that are out there. What's your favorite way a potato is made? So I love potatoes just about every way. There was a way in Argentina, there's a, a restaurant there that makes an incredible potato. And the restaurant was called Palacio de Papa Frita, the palace of the French fry. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. That sounds so like, it'd be like a So it'd be like a big <gasps> slice of potato. And the way they cook it, the skin inflates like a tent. <laughs> so when they come to your table, they're real crispy. And you can stick your fork in it and it will deflate right in front of you. Oh, my goodness. But, they're some of the best uh, potatoes I've ever eaten. And they, and they serve that with a steak. You know, oh. steak those fries, a steak, and salad. Yeah. Oh, so uh, wait, wait. So is it, you said it's just like a cut of potatoes. Is there like any like spices or toppings on it? No, no, it's just salt. That's oh, all. Okay. That's all that's on there. And it's really crispy. They, they put them, they have a special way where they put them in cold water and then they put them right in the oil and then they, they, they inflate up like that. So it's kind of neat. That's kind of their their uh, trademark. So what has been like your favorite meal that you have ever had in your lifetime? Oh, well, living in Argentina. I mean, I, I grew up on a, on a ranch where we raised cattle, so I always like beef. But being in Argentina where they have more beef than we do and good beef, uh, a good steak is my favorite meal. No question. And I fix, I grill them too for I was the about family. To say, how, how do you cook that? Because have, have you tried with a, a cast iron skillet? So, yeah, I've ha- had the cast iron. But my favorite way is just to grill them on the grill. Mm. I got a, 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 a gas grill. Just prepare them with some salt and put them on there and cook them two minutes on each side. Make sure they're not, uh, make sure there's about medium rare, a lot of juice. Hey, so there you go. My whole family likes them. <laughs> Oh man, now I'm hungry. Yes, now I'm starving. Potatoes. Yeah. So I'll tell you a little story. I had a group at this restaurant, the Palacio Papa Frita in Argentina. These are all Americans. And so we were ordering these steaks. So they were asking them how they want them. Well, there was like two or three guys said they wanted them well done. Well, in Argentina, that's like a crime to cook a steak. <laughs> so the, the waiter says to me, he says, did, did, let me get this right. Did these three guys say they want it well done? And I said, yes. He goes, do they know what that means? And I said, yeah, they're kind of off in the head. Don't worry about <laughs> it. Just bring it to them the way they want it. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> All right. Well, I think, Pastor, Bo- uh, Pastor Boyd, we've uh, accomplished our questions here. Uh, thank you for being patient with us and <laughs> being flexible and all the changes and stuff. Again, sorry about that little uh, technical issue, but... Uh, we thank you for this interview, and it should be up on Friday. Uh, I'll edit it tomorrow and get that stuff done, and 
uh, I'll send you a yeah, link. Send, and all me, that send stuff. me a link whenever mm-hmm. you get it up. Yep. Uh, I did talk to I did talk to uh, a young person who was really bragging on both of you guys. Oh. Oh. Me. So somebody from your youth group. So. That's, oh. So it sounds like you're doing a good job. Awesome. So well, that's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, Mike yeah. also says hi. Yes, Mike he listened speaks, to say hello. Yeah, he speaks very highly of you. So it's it's been a great time just being able to talk with you and you know you sharing some of our wisdom as young people. Yeah. Yeah, we, we brought you up last night in uh, dinner with Mike and Lucinda, and Lucinda's like, oh, Pastor Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was a good, like, oh, Pastor Brooks. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, keep up the good work, guys. All right, we All appreciate right, it, thank Pastor. You. Thank you very much. All right, talk to you later. Yep. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Done! Yeah, yeah. He was actually...